0: John Weathersby will be preaching on, out of Genesis chapter 33, verses 1 through 20 today. This will be the reading from God's holy word. Then Jacob lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two servant women. And he put the servant women and their children first, and Leah and her children after them, and Rachel and Joseph after them. But he passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? And he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servant women came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all these camps which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. And Jacob said, No, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from your from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my blessing, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have everything. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak, and and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will lead on slowly, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. Then Esau said, please let me leave with some of the people who are with me. But he said, why do this? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the place is named Succoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, which he came from Pedam, Aram and he camped before the city. Then he bought a portion of a field where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for one hundred Keseth. Then he set up there an altar and called it El Elyho Israel. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God.
1: John, for reading that, I uh, originally was going to be um, chapter thirty-three through verse seventeen, I think, but took took on the the ending portion. Um, I kind of went back and forth. I, I feel like uh, it's better to, to, to end it in in verse twenty here and and let Pastor John take on. Chapter thirty four, which is uh, which is a tough passage. Um, in fact, it's funny. I was talking with Michael this morning. His brother wants to come for that. He said he's never heard that taught on, and that gets to one of the one of the things that I love about our approach to teaching through the scriptures is because we're book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we hit everything as we go through. We'll, uh, Lord willing, in our lifetimes, we'll sit through teaching of the entire Bible. Every chapter, every verse, nothing ducked away from, uh, nothing avoided, and I, I like that because honestly, my tendency would be to teach on easy things because I'm lazy, um, and so otherwise, I just look at the way the schedule is going to come out. I pick the hard chapters and verses, and I make sure that they're on Pastor John Nicholas's days, like Chapter Thirty Four. So I come to you with the softball that is Chapter Thirty Three. In Jacob's life, today in particular, I mean, certainly over the course of the, of the whole life, but in today's passage in particular, we see the purpose and the power of God flowing through him. Um, we've, we've talked over and over about being able to so clearly and plainly see the sovereignty of God, in, really in Genesis. I mean, Genesis is a, is a completely foundational text to everything that we know as believers. It is very important, and frankly, it's very important to get it right. Um, many people would approach this text, uh, not, not just chapter 33, but the book of Genesis and say, well, it's allegory. Because if you do that, you can go anywhere you want. You don't have to be penned by God. You, you, can, you can say anything you want when you're looking at allegory. And so we take a grammatical and historical approach. That's, that's kind of the, the buzzwords for our approach is a grammatical, historical, hermeneutic. The way that we understand it would be the way that you understand language. Normally, in a normal context, and we talked about that in Sunday school this morning, Um, Jason was talking about if you you go back in a dictionary even a decade ago, even just 10 years ago, and you look up many words that are in that dictionary, and then you look at a dictionary that was printed yesterday, if one were, those words would mean different things. And it's difficult to be able to communicate when the very definition of words are changing from underneath our feet. And so our approach being grammatical and historical sometimes means we need to slow down and explain the way that we're understanding words. There is a natural drift in words over time that can tend to happen culturally. I remember my first, my first purchase. Some of you may be too young. Some of you remember very well a company called BMG. For a penny, you'd get like 8,000 tapes, right? But then they would never stop sending them to you and they would bill you over and over and over again. And the first thing I bought was Michael Jackson's Thriller. And I remember having to describe to my mom that bad was good. You know, it's a a drifting kind of a language. Colloquialism picks up. And so sometimes when we come to the scriptures, we have to understand the way they would have used those words. And seeing that in scripture itself is even very helpful. Um, There's a question over whether or not there was a barter for land or if money would have been used for land. And if we look forward in Acts chapter 7, we see New Testament... Uh, New Testament commentary on the Old Testament text where we know as far back as Abraham he was using silver coins to buy land and so staying in the text is helpful to understand the text and what we'll see in this story and in Jacob's life is the sovereignty of God over all of his creation exercising his will on the hearts of people even scorn-filled angry people even strife inside a family and there is big strife between these brothers and we'll see that God has the very heart of Esau in the palm of his hand to exercise his will and so we're reminded of great God's great power and his unthwartable plan of salvation his will will be done and so in the 33rd chapter and in the first verse we read and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold Esau was coming and 400 men with him so he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants so it's important to remember the experience that Jacob is coming off of we're 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 picking up and he's he's lifting his eyes so something's happened before this And if we go back to chapter 32, um, as it starts to close out around verse 24, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's, Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Skimming down through, picking up in verse 31, the sun rose upon him, and he passed, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Jacob had been striving with an angel sent by God. He was touched and he was left with a lasting limp. I said last week that that used to really confuse me. I used to really stumble over that, and I feel like I understand that better. Um, because you see that the sun rose upon him. I shared that I take uh, uh, scandalous volumes of melatonin just to get terrible sleep. And along with that comes really weird dreams. And so I feel that this limp that was left with him was a reminder that, in fact, this was not a dream. This actually happened that this is real because the courage that he's going to need to face the situation that he's walking into that we're about to see he lifts up his eyes and he sees his brother who he knows to have a bloodlust for him who's had contention since the moments of their first of their birth and has every right to be angry with him for stealing a blessing from him he's going to need a lot of encouragement and so this this limp reminds him that God is with him in fact very tangibly and it's not a dream it's not in his head it wasn't last night's bad pizza it was real and that's encouragement and that's just such a blessing that God would be so involved that he would he would even come alongside someone to see them along um I think as a parent sometimes it's it's so easy We we can be rather obtuse with our kids, I think, sometimes, and probably sinfully so because we're busy, and we want them to just listen. Just listen because I say just listen, but they're processing and they're learning, and so sometimes we're not patient enough as parents. We say, just because I said, just do it. Now, sometimes that's important, right? Because I said you should stop here at the edge of the street, you should just do it. Sometimes there's opportunity for a child to learn why you're saying that, right? Right? Uh, we, We do this because it's socially appropriate. Listen, little Timmy, we don't bite people because later that becomes a criminal act. Right now it's pseudo cute. But it becomes problematic later. And so God so gracefully comes alongside Jacob. He calls him to go to this land we see in 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 genesis 31 3 he's called to return to his homeland and then he's encouraged immediately thereafter god says i will be with you and then more than that god comes and sends an angel and strives with him and he recognizes that god is with him and he's left with a limp so that he'll remember and now in chapter 33 in verse 1 as he's limping off as the sun comes up he lifts his eyes and there is esau what timing and not alone with Esau is the 400 men. We remember the, he, sent some, he sent the advance party, and they said, hey, Esau's coming to, coming to see you, and he has 400 men with him. Sounds rough. When they say people fleeing from danger flee with wives and children. People running to invade come with the men only. We're seeing that today. 400 men come together. He has every earthly human reason to be afraid, except that God said, I'll be with you. And he saw an angel that night, and he strived and he wrestled with the angel, so much so that his leg was pushed out of socket. I mean, I've not ever had that happen, but it sounds entirely painful. And he looks up, and there is his brother. His brother who in in genesis chapter 25 and verse 26 we see he they they were born one holding the other one's heel on the way out of the womb i mean you 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 talk about strife among siblings in my home there's five so there's you know people are hiding food all over the place Um, there's passive aggressive notes around the house like do not eat this is mine there's arguing over who has to be in a room with whom very normal kinds of sibling rivalry, but theirs is pretty next level. We read last week that Jacob ends up fleeing to go see Laban because he finds out through his mom that his brother comforts himself by thinking about murdering him. I don't know what that looks like, but I feel like there's like rocking to the body when you're, you're comforting yourself by contemplating murdering the other person. And so it's so important to understand all of this context as you think of Jacob's being called by God to do something that's absolutely terrifying. What he's walking into is is going to be, of course, a brother who's still entirely infuriated with him, but God's calling him to do it. God says, I want you to go there. God says, I'll be with you. He says, I'm going to number your offspring more than the sand of the earth. He makes all of these promises. He comes to him. He says, I'll be with you. He comes to him. They wrestle. They strife. He gives him a limp so that he'll know that it's true. And then as he looks up, there is this brother who he knows that he knows hates him. Genesis twenty-seven forty-two. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. And up go his eyes as he travels with this large family, the four mothers of his 13 children, Reuben, Simon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Nefali, Gad, Asher, Ishkar, Zebulun, Dinah, Joseph, and Benjamin. And now he's going to take all of the children and the four women and divide them and put them in order. Verse 2, and he puts... The servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children, and Rachel, and Joseph, last of all. Now, I think what's happening here is culturally important. Um, we're so, I think, familiar in the United States with our customs that we forget we have customs. We think it's just what everyone does. And so when we hear about another nation, another country having customs, we're confused because we're so big, we just think we're everything, right? Right? It's not like in, in other nations, like or in Europe, you, you go a car ride away and you're now in another country. That's the most amazing thing to me about Europe, is you go from border to border and there's completely different cultures. It's the coolest thing. They used to have, every, you know, you would stop at the border and you would exchange money and you would go from having German marks to Italian lira and you need 5,000 of them to buy a postcard. But entirely different cultures by these people groups. And so in the US, the kinds of things we do, men tend to open the door and hold the door for women. We shake hands when we meet people, and the hand we do it with is important. Go to another country and extend the right hand and see what happens. Jeep people compulsively wave at each other like some strange addiction they see another jeep and their arm just fires up in the air they're odd there's they have a problem it's mental they're broken they're scarred they're strange they shouldn't be allowed to continue motorcycle people are so lonely if they see another motorcycle they wave at it they're not even waving to the rider they're waving at the motorcycle because they're so excited to see one These are cultures and strange things that we do. And we forget about the formality. Think about you know, the, 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 the norms that we have. The, the President of the United States, when that person walks out, the person that's on their right or on their left is predetermined. They don't just walk out and everybody lands where they land. When the president of the United States goes to another country, they can't be some bumbling fool. They have to be aware of that other country's national norms, or they could cause big problems. They could forget to shake someone's hand on stage, and this could be a big problem between those countries. It could be hugely offensive. And I think that's what we're seeing here as the ordering of the families are being put together. This wasn't Jacob's last stand to have an army of servants and wives and servant ladies and toddlers, and this was their last stand to fight Esau and his 400 men. This is a customary greeting. He's taking on a position of being honoring towards his brother, and I think we'll continue to see that. People were, I think, being put in order of reverence, in order of importance, and so that's why we Catch the note that Rachel and Joseph are last. We'll see everyone's arranged in, I think, a ceremonial order to meet Uncle Esau. When the Lord appeared to Abraham... At the Oaks of Mamre, in, in Genesis 18, 1 through 3, we see that he, he bows. It's this prostration, this kind of pointing your body towards the ground, this ceremonious, it could in, in some instances, would be, would be worship. Um, in the New Testament, we see it called proskuneo, um, just posturing your body in a very specific way. Again, a common kind of a cultural greeting for something of very high importance. Very ceremonious is happening. It's, it's not like a, a common greeting of the day. You don't see your buddy downtown, right? While you're, you're, you're downtown trading for sheep and ox and you're bowing towards the ground. This is, there's something very big going on in this sense. Verse three, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Again, this is not some last stand. They're not setting up for battle He's coming to his brother, reverent. He's coming to his brother, looking forward to a a reconciliation. He's coming to his brother, frankly, in total obedience to God, limping his way, stopping and bowing towards the ground. It's wise. You could flip to Proverbs chapter six. Um, We'll look at Proverbs and, and Ecclesiastes. They'll come up on the screen. You can write them down. You can read them later. Proverbs chapter 6, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For if you have come into the hand of your neighbor, go hasten, plead urgently with your neighbor, give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber, save yourself like gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler." It's wise not to live in contention. It's so easy. The world around us lives with constant bickering and battling and fighting all over the place. You know, there was a time before social media. There was a time before reality television when everything wasn't so amped up. I mean, of course, things have always been amped up. There's always been sin in the world. But reality TV came along and it's, it's, it's the craziest of things because it's not real, right? It's scripted. They're setting up problems and strife in the background because for whatever reason, we love to see strife. But among the believers, among the brethren, we're supposed to live peaceably. We're supposed to outdo one another in showing honor. There's supposed to be a certain love among the brethren. When we greet one another, we do so with a holy kiss. It's it's differentiated. And so when people look in on us, they shouldn't see people inside fighting. They should see a A common worship of a sovereign God. My my favorite illustration of worship, and I I love it and I'll say it over and over again, would be if we were to stand outside on the sidewalk and and you imagine this is a pretty busy area. Lots of people live. You know, there's people driving into into downtown to go do criminal acts uh, as members of the government. There's people doing criminal acts just because they're doing criminal acts and there's people just living, right? So it's busy. It's a good representation of the world. And so if we were to stand outside and stand on the sidewalk and just, just all of us, this group of us, just stand and just stare into the sky and just look, people would stop and they'd say, what, what, are, they, what are they doing? What are they looking at? And in a sense, that's what our worship is like. But our gaze is so fixed on God. It's so otherworldly. It's of so much earthly good that people say, what, what, are they, what are they looking at? What are they doing? What is this that they worship? Why do they gather? Why are these people together? Why are they willing to to quell and squash? Why are they so excited? Why are they so loving towards one another? We're worshipful. We're not just a sub-segment of the world that meets together like the Kiwanis Club or the Lions Club or the American Legion. We're gathered around something that's so much more and so much greater, and it's the sovereign God of all creation and our worship and our gathering and our common worship of God is designed to point to that. Ecclesiastes 10.4, if the anger of a ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense to rest. Biblical strategies for dealing with strife. Luke chapter 14, verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. How frequently is our tempo and our temperament to humble ourselves? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe it's frequent for you. I think for me, it's not. And so I do well to consider, am, am, I, am I exalting myself in this moment? If you, if you go downstairs to Sunday school and you look right here on, on the pulpit, um, I put it on Instagram the other day. That is a website where you put up pictures And other people can see them. That's for John Nicholas so that he can understand what Instagram is. Actually, I'm going to expose something. That is the one social media platform that John is very secretly on. Truth is out there, pal. (laughs) Anyway, downstairs, on the pulpit, it says, He must increase, I must decrease. What a great reminder for all of us every day. What what does it mean to decrease? And how does that bring God increase? I think that's something to, to wrestle with and grapple with. It's probably different for you than it is for me. But what great opportunity to increase and magnify the sovereign God of creation. I wonder how frequently our problems are perpetuated because we won't stand down. I would submit to you for myself, it's very frequently. What we see in Joseph is letting a lifetime's worth of contention and strife go. And I, I tend to think it's got to be about spending a few decades with Laban. Maybe he's repentant. Maybe it's changed something about his temperament to have spent so much time with someone who is conniving So much time with someone who was always scheming. So much time with someone who is just about getting over. It's probably changed something about him. Psalm 37 verses 8 and 9. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land again i would submit to you that waiting is hard waiting for the lord is hard because so so frequently we just see what just needs to happen and we want to get it done right i mean as americans whether you're type a or not you probably are you're probably hard charging. You're probably driven. You probably see what needs to be done and start thinking about, well, how do I do it? Right? There's this weird sickness about us where we want to order our time so that we can fit more into our time. And then we, we come home and we compare notes about who was busier. Oh, I'm so tired. I worked 90 hours this week. I'm exhausted. I can't stop being busy. Everybody needs me all the time. No one, frankly, knows where the quote comes from, but it's attributed to at least seven or ten generals where they said, you're so, you're so important, you're so necessary, you're, you're, you're indispensable. And the, the general, the leader, points to the cemetery behind him and says that the cemetery is full of indispensable men. The world continues every time an indispensable person dies. You can take a rest, right? You can take a minute. Every night, I go to sleep for at least an hour, I close my eyes, my body shuts down, um, and everything about the world continues just fine without my presence. Animals still live, bats fly around, earth still spins. It requires none of my presence for everything to keep going. And it's just such a great reminder of how necessary we are not. It feels like that's why we get anxious, right? And the scriptures remind us we can't control the color of a single hair on our head. But God knows each one. And so we would we would do well to listen to the word and calm it down a little bit. In this meeting, verse four, we see that Joseph is is. Is he, maybe he's stopping and he's, he's bowing, stopping and bowing, stopping and bowing. Maybe he walks a little bit forward. Maybe Esau's walking forward the whole time. Who knows? Maybe he waits for all seven and then he walks and see his brother, but runs to see his brother, we see in verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. This is not the greeting, I think, that he was anticipating. Again, talk about cultural norms, to talk about customs and ceremonious kinds of things. Is, similar language is, is is used at the prodigal son in Luke 15, 20. This running and greeting, the way he has, the falling on his neck. And I think it's just a great picture of the sovereignty and the purpose of God. These brothers have been contending with one another since the very day they were born and even in the moments before their birth in the womb they were in contention they were in contention at the moment of their father's death they had split from one another so that no one was murdered and now they're rejoined together and suddenly it's a monumentous occasion of kissing and hugging and greeting and saying hi and and talking and chatting We saw the same kind of a greeting, actually, in Genesis 29 and verse 13 with Laban. When he had, when he had left his, his family, he went to go see Laban, and, and, and his uncle comes out, and, and, he, and he hugs him, and he falls on his neck. And so we get all of these all of these pictures of this common kind of a greeting. Verse 5, when Esau lifted up his eyes, and he saw the women and the children, and he said, who, who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near and their children and bowed down. Now remember, four baby mamas, two wives. So we've got the two servants and their children have come forward and they're greeting Esau and bowing down. They're kind of pseudo brother-in-law. I don't really know how you work that one out in, in polygamous groups. And then the wives come in order, and the children meet and perhaps exchange names, and they bow, and last come forward, Joseph and Rachel, and bow. The children, he admits, he states, are his by God's grace. And so everyone, everyone meets together, and there's this kind of a, remember, it's been two decades that he's been gone. Right, he had to serve for one wife for seven, serve for another wife for seven, work for a while. Um, God called him to, to leave and return home. He created the very way to do it. He gave constant favor for this to happen. And, and now he's, he's kind of mending these two men together. And Jacob is here to make peace, trusting, certainly, I think, imperfectly, but trusting the call of God that came in Genesis chapter 31, the promise of God to be with him, this this new limp that he's walking with. And this is going to leave an impression on his life. And, And I think this is similar to the way that our own walks with God go. As we experience more in this life, we experience God, we experience following after him many times, probably imperfectly, and, and we see God see us through these times, then when we, we look back after several years, our, our trust, our faith begins to grow. We, we know that we can turn to God in prayer. We know that we can trust that God is with us. We know that his will won't be thwarted. I mean, so frequently, I think you, we, we hear from people who, usually it's when someone's not happy with their job. They say, I just want to know what the will of God is for my life. That's somebody that doesn't like where they work a lot of times, because they want it to be something that means I get to stop doing this. I get to now go do something else. I get to quit. I get to uproot myself. I get to do something incredible. I get to move to a cool country. But he's, again, perhaps imperfectly trusting the call of God to return to his homeland. Esau asks him, What did you mean by all the camps I met? Um, I think the LSB, so I'm reading out of the ESV right now. I think the LSB is actually a little bit more helpful here. Um, More directly, this would mean camps than company. The camps that I met versus the company that I met. We would have to think back. In in fact, ESV translates this word only three times, um, company, and 265 times, camps. These are the servants, the oxen, the donkeys, the flocks, the male servants, the female servants that were sent to find favor in Genesis 32, verses 1 through 5, to go meet Esau in advance of the family coming, right? Remember, he was, he was kind of stressing about um, going to see his brother. He was, he was alone, and, and he had a moment with God, uh, and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to carve off all of these possessions, all of this livestock, all of these animals Um, all of these servants male servants and female servants and I'm going to send them out in waves with a message to my brother I'm I'm earning favor I want him to know that I'm coming from a disposition of looking for favor I'm I'm coming from a position of as the as the proverbs would say um, of reverence towards my brother I'm not here in strife I'm not preparing for war I'm not building battle lines I'm mending and so he asks, what is going on with all the company that I met? Why-, why are you sending waves of servants and animals and all of these kids that I just met? Like, what's going on here? And so Jacob presses on his brother, Esau, this is a gift. It's all yours now. Take it. And, and I understand this situation because his brother's saying, I don't want it. And he's telling him, yes, I want you to take it. Um, you know, I shared before I grew up in the South. And in the South, there's this really weird custom of someone tries to give you something and you're not allowed to take it. It's like the weirdest thing because you hear of like southern hospitality, right? So people want to be hospitable, but part of that culture and being hospitable means you don't receive hospitality. And here's how this works. When I was a kid, I used to be sent off to my neighbor's house to work for them like an indentured servant. Didn't matter. They could use me like a rented mule, whatever it is that they wanted me to do. That was how I was going to spend my Saturday. They would send me over there. The, the guy next door would give me awful work to do. And then he would give me like a soda. Now, I'm supposed to say no to this soda, also to the money. And then when I get home, I'm pretty sure there was a phone call that went on. They'd say, hey, did he take it? And my mom would say, yeah. Or they would say, yeah, to my mom, yeah, he took it. she said, well, I'll take care of that. I get home, they're like, you didn't take anything from him, did you? I'm like, well, you offered me a soda. Well, what did you say? I said, well, "I said no, thank you. And they said they insisted. She said, you didn't take it, did you? I said, yes. So now my mom's all mad at me right? It's this, you're, for whatever reason, it's one of those cultural norms. And so similarly here, as these this waves and companies of animals and servants are being given to Esau, Esau says, hey man, I don't want all this. And his brother says, no, it's yours. And he contends with him, you are going to keep this. Again, he's building up an environment of favor. Verse 12, then Esau said, let us journey on our way. I'll go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and the herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and Sarah. So, On this passage, I I, I like how Calvin put it, so I'm just going to read a a bit of a long quote. Not too bad. Although Esau was inclined to benevolence, Jacob still distrusts him. Not that he fears to be ensnared or that he suspects perfidy to lie hidden under the garb of friendship, but that he cautiously avoids occasions of offense, for a proud and ferocious man might easily be exacerbated by light causes. Now, though just reason for fear was not wanting to the holy man, yet I dare not deny that his anxiety was excessive. He suspected the liberty of Esau, but he did not know that God was standing between him, who, as he was convinced by clear and undoubted experience, watched for his salvation. For whence such an incredible change of mind in Esau, unless he had been divinely transformed from a wolf into a lamb? Let us learn from this example to restrain our anxieties, lest when God has provided for us, we tremble as in an affair of doubt. What he's saying is, you know, maybe, and, and I'll add, maybe two decades with Laban and constant trickery. And, and maybe a lifetime with his own brother where he himself has been involved in trickery, where they've been in contention and strife, maybe he's just in the back of his mind, he's like, we had a great greeting, I gave him some things, but I don't know if I want him behind me yet, right? So let me say the kids are frail. I don't know what's wrong with the kids, you know, they should be fine, but they're frail. Kids are malleable. I, I watched one sprint into Michael's leg bounce off him, land on the floor, and look for popcorn, right? Kids were fine. So I, I would agree with John Calvin. I think that he was still kind of not really at peace with the whole brother thing, but that might not be it at all. It could been, it was, it was a great greeting, and he really thought, hey, I've got some frail kids here. They're a little weak. You know, Timmy has asthma. He doesn't eat much. You know, he has rickets. Legs don't work super well. I, I don't know. But no matter, they will separate. And it's interesting because we won't see them come back together until I think 35, chapter 35. But what we see though, very clearly, is the power of God is flowing through. We see the sovereign plan is going to play out. And we see that God exercises his own will even on the hearts of scorn-filled and angry men, which reminds us of God's great power and plan salvation. Verse 15, so Esau said, let me leave with you some people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and he built himself a house made of booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Now, I mentioned earlier Acts chapter 7 verses 13 through 16 tells us that as far back as Abraham silver coins are being used to to exchange money for land and, and the reason I bring that up is that the there's the name of a coin and the name of an animal that overlaps here and, and some people have said well maybe they maybe they were maybe he bartered for the land maybe it wasn't very much money maybe it was only a little bit and that comes up because there's a question of would it have been God's best for him to buy this land? Or was he to journey on? Was he to continue to Bethel? I'll leave that to Pastor John Nicholas to noodle on perhaps next week in the the coming study as to whether or not he should have landed. But we do know, again, that God's sovereign plan will always be seen through. We see that God will call him to Bethel a second time in Genesis chapter 35. And there, his name will be Israel. So he will continue on, even though he may fumble and flub a little bit along the way. We see that in Paul also. Paul, you know, his desire is to go here. And so he turns this direction and he tries and the Holy Spirit won't let him. So he turns this direction and he tries. The Holy Spirit won't let him. He turns this direction and he tries. And so he finally he gets to go. I think sometimes the will of God and figuring out the will of God is like that. It's trusting and being willing to go. It's, it's being willing to go in some direction. Some of us, you know, we we say we're not charismatic, um, but we're looking for the message to be written down to us. You know, the total story of God's will for my life, written for me, and then I'll follow it. Is that really faith? If I need the sovereign God of all creation to step into my life and make clear to me in my mind with a James Earl Jones voice exactly what he wants me to do every single time, am I really trusting him? Do I really believe in sovereignty if I require that? If I won't move my feet until I hear exactly what God wants me to do, do I really, really trust him? I trust in sovereignty that he won't let me outside of his will. In fact, I would suggest you cannot be outside of the sovereign will of God. Wrestle with that one. Verse 18, and Jacob came safely to the city of Sechem, which is the land of Canaan, and on his way from and Aram, he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the land on which he pitched his tent. And, and Pastor John Nicholas will deal with these folks a lot next week. Um, but he ends up erecting an altar. And this altar says that this is, this is where Israel lives. This is where God is. It's an external testimony, if you will, to his faith. Again, question over whether or not he should have bought this land. Question over whether or not he should have tried to park here. But this is what he does. And so again, I think that this story is so helpful to see the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God over the aspects of Jacob's life. But perhaps our tendency would be to think that that's how God was for the patriarch. That's how God was in the Old Testament. But we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is still involved in the aspects of life. His sovereign plan is going to play out. And so we would do well to trust God. Go back to Psalm 37, verses 8 and 9. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. It is medicinal and necessary. For those of us who have seen that you are holy, and you are good, and you are great, and we are not, that we're fallen, and that we're sinful, and that there is no mediation between us, there is no way that we could... Make ourselves right. There's no pile of works that we could build that would be high enough to find our way to communion with you and have seen the Christ, have seen Jesus who lived and always tempted like us, yet without sin, who then gave himself up as the once final sacrifice for sin that all of Israel was constantly pointing to the need for. And by your grace, that you have turned our hearts to that sovereign. Lord of salvation, who is Jesus? Your word is balm and ointment. It is soothing to us who live in a world of strife and contention, in a a world that is constantly cracking and moaning under the strain of sin. God, we thank you that we are covered by the righteousness of your Son, that we are reborn and made new, that you've taken our hearts of stone and turned them to flesh, that we're no longer slaves to the sin that once ensnared us, God. You are great. And for those who may not know you yet in that way, through your son, Jesus, I pray that this morning that you would, you would reach them, that you would turn their hearts to see that they're materially different from you, that you are holy, God, and that they are sin, like all of us, in need of a Savior who can only be the man Christ Jesus. There's no other way to you, God, and we're so thankful for that. We're thankful for the sacrifice of Christ. We're thankful thankful for the Holy Spirit that calls us, and God, I pray if there would be someone like that today, that you would move on their heart, that they would see their sin before you, that they would understand that Christ is the only way to be connected with you, and that they would repent, meaning turning away from trusting themselves and trusting in their sin and trusting your sovereign son, Christ, to be their Lord and Savior, that they would then follow him, and that that would give us opportunity to walk together with them. God, we thank you that this is your plan for life. We're excited to follow after your will as revealed in this word. We're excited to look at this word, to find your will in it, to find your character in it, and to be obedient to serve you with our lives. God, thank you for the opportunity to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.